The University of Connecticut is a pioneering body of research and innovation. This podcast brings you the stories, the motivations, the passions possessed by the people behind this success. Welcome to UConn in Vivo. Good morning, everyone. Today we talk to Dr. Sherry Pagato, Professor of Allied Health Sciences as well as Director of the UConn Center for Mobile Health and Social Media. We discuss how social media can be used for health support groups, preventative health care, and to combat public health misinformation. This was a really interesting conversation, and we hope you enjoy listening. Good morning, Victor. Good morning, Dr. Good morning. Sherry Pagato. Thank you very much for joining us. Good morning. So you're the Professor in Allied Health Sciences, Director of M Health. What current projects are you focusing on in your lab? So we actually have a number of projects in our lab that the common denominator across these projects is we are looking at ways that we can use social media to improve people's health. And so let me give you an example. We have a study going on right now where we're able to counsel people for weight loss in Facebook groups. Okay. So instead of the old-fashioned way where we do weight loss counseling where people come into the clinic and meet with a counselor or dietitian in visits that are weekly and go on for months at a time. We actually can find ways to, to deliver that sort of counseling in online communities using Facebook, Twitter, and other social media platforms where we can create private groups mm-hmm. and interact with people. So we'll recruit people into the study group, and so there might be, you know, 30 people or so in a group, um, and it's led by a behavioral counselor who might be a dietitian or have a psychology background. We have a feed of posts that educate people about different behavioral strategies to lose weight. So Mm -hmm. those are posts every week where they actually weigh in and report kind of what their weight is that week. They set goals. They're able to follow up on their goals. They get advice on how things are going. They get a plan. So we're having all of these discussions online as opposed to having people make lots of trips to and from the campus or to a clinic or wherever it may be. So it might be a little bit more convenient for people. And we know that people are using social media on a regular basis. For example, there's a statistic out there that the average Facebook user is on there about a half hour a day. And we probably know people are using it much more than (laughs) that. Right, that's the average. Um, So we're looking at our social media feeds. So to the extent that we can get health messaging into those feeds and use those platforms as ways to help people manage their behaviors, then a lot of that time could be pretty well spent. Mm. So So when it comes to intervention through these social media platforms, Mm -hmm. what kind of tweaks do you have to make to the therapeutic modalities that you would be implementing otherwise to make it better suited to this platform? That's a really good question, (laughs) because that's sort of where the devil is in the details. So normally, if I were to be counseling someone, I would have a binder that I would give them with all kinds of handouts that have all kinds of education on them. I would be trained in a counseling approach that, you know, we would talk face-to-face. So doing that over social media does require a conversion process Mm -hmm. and thinking of how do we turn this into Facebook posts that are going to engage people. Mm -hmm. You don't want to post things that are long and boring because people aren't used to long and boring things (laughs) in their Facebook feeds. So what we try to do is leverage social media marketing principles. You know, there's certain types of media that get more clicks and things like that. And so we try to make things very engaging, use images, media. We use polls, which are very popular on social media. Everyone likes to vote in a poll. So we use those sorts of things that the platform offers and think of ways that we can kind of make 
being involved in the group and losing weight a little bit more fun. It's challenging, though, because the key is to get people to engage, and not everyone is on all the time. And so we're constantly thinking about ways to better engage folks, and we're doing a lot of studies right now trying different types of engagement strategies like for example do people engage more when there are people they know in the group do they engage more depending on group size like a really big group versus a smaller group are there certain ways that you can write posts that would engage people certain sort of media that they engage with more so those are some of the questions that we're trying to answer is how to kind of create the content and modify it in a way that would best engage people and it turns out the content will look a lot different than it might normally look mm-hmm. if people were to come in and you're just giving them handouts and that sort of thing. Not that that's necessarily very <laughs> engaging. So I think there's actually more of a potential for some creativity by doing it online because you have all these different engagement strategies. But online, it can be easier to ignore things. Mm-hmm. So if I have a patient in front of me, we can have a conversation Um But when people are online, they can just sort of scroll through. And so I think that's where things get challenging is how do you prevent them from just scrolling past and from really being an active participant in that group, especially if you've ever tried to lose weight, like you kind of hit those periods of time where you get frustrated and you kind of just want to turn it off. So we try to inject as much fun into it as we can to give people reason to kind of keep coming back to it. But the challenge that we experience when we do it the old-fashioned way is that often after some period of time people just stop coming in Mm -hmm. and so then we're really at a loss if they're not coming in anymore whereas online it might be a little bit easier to sort of pull them back in when they hit those motivational slumps. Yeah so I wonder about the efficacy of these groups right I mean Mm -hmm. if you have a weight loss group let's say for example in person you have that personal touch right you have that Mm -hmm. humanization you see visually somebody slimming down you compliment them in person and there's a feedback loop there of we're in a group, we're doing this together, we have this task, and we're reaching our goals. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, like, are these groups more of an addition to rather than a supplement of these old-school traditional approaches? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So one of the studies we have right now is really testing that comparison, is we have the old-school version and we have the online version. We're randomizing people who are game for either mm-hmm. to one or the other of those conditions, and they'll be in the program for a year. We're randomizing over 300 people, and we're right at the tail end where we just randomized our last wave of folks for that particular study and doing that head-to-head comparison because we haven't seen an actual fully-powered head-to-head comparison to see how well Mm -hmm. they fare. I will say anecdotally, as a clinical psychologist who counseled a lot of people, it is easier to counsel people in person, Mm, (laughs) although the challenge is... If they stop showing up, then it's really hard to counsel them. (laughs) So to kind of recreate the personal touch online is difficult. So I think that's definitely the weakness of technology is it doesn't feel as personal. However, we do have kind of this younger generation of folks who are digital natives and are used to engaging online in ways that do feel emotionally intimate and that sort of thing. And so I think the real potential might be in younger people for whom it doesn't feel like a second language, but for whom like they're Mm -hmm. used to engaging in this way. So people who are in their 20s, teenagers, that sort of thing. Compared to me, I'm 45. 
social media was not invented when I was younger. <laughs> so it's sort of this new thing. I have an 11-year-old, and she's on Instagram. So, like, it's her native language to use social media, whereas for people who are over that particular generation gap, there's differences. And so that may be something that matters, too. So you haven't done yet the head-to-head comparison to know exact the efficacy comparisons. But in terms of retention Mm -hmm. between the two, what do you see as keeping people for longer? Yeah, that's a good question, too. So we've done some smaller studies, and we did not find big differences in retention. It also depends on how you define retention. People will stick around a little bit longer in an online group because there's no sort of hurdle to participating, whereas in an in-person group, they could just stop coming. And then usually once someone's stopped coming for a couple of visits, it's really hard to get them back. Mm. Whereas if someone hasn't engaged online for a couple of weeks, we're not seeing that same thing. They they might sort of breeze in and out more Mm -hmm. easily, but I think when you're part of a group and you've missed a couple of meetings, people feel like a little embarrassed to come back or like they've missed too much, whereas online you can just sort of scroll. No one really notices you haven't Mm -hmm. been there. So I feel like from a retention standpoint, the online might be a little bit better because it's just a lighter lift to be present, Um, whereas to be present, if we schedule a group at 5.30 on Wednesdays, you got to schlep out and, (laughs) like, show up. I'm also curious about whether there's an increase in the frequency of people I don't want to say lying, but more like deceiving, or if, if it is a weight loss group, reporting that they've lost more weight than they truly have on an online group because there's no verification or validation in person. Yeah, yeah. So we do have them come in at different points to take their weight okay. in person. Um, in some of our studies, we use Wi-Fi scales, although you could always game that, I suppose, if you wanted. That's um, a bit more yeah. effort, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> So we'll send them out the scale, and then we get the weight I from see. that. But one thing I do see online, maybe a little bit more than you might see in person, is this thing on social media where people do try to sort of put their best face forward. Mm -hmm. So they talk more about when things are going well than when things aren't going well. And you see this in social media in general. Like people will post pictures of their vacations and their smiling faces. But when they're feeling doom and gloom, they don't necessarily post all about that. And so it sort of presents this image like everything's great and so when we're in a weight loss group it can be good like it's great to know you're doing well but the downside of that is when people aren't doing well they might feel more alone about it and so that's something that we've been trying to think about a lot lately is how do we get people to feel comfortable being a little bit more vulnerable in a private group Mm -hmm. it's not public to share some of the things that are, you know, less good. So one of the things that we allow people to do is what we call the anonymous post. So they can send us their problem or question that we will post for them anonymously. So they don't have to attach their name to the thing. So Mm -hmm. people will say, do you mind posting this? I'm really having trouble right now. I stopped on the way home from work and I got a Big Mac and fries and then I came home and had dinner anyway and then polished off some ice cream and I don't want to admit that to the group, but I'm suffering and I need some advice on how to get out of this slump. 
So they don't want to say that with their name attached to it. So we'll post it and say, anonymous post, a group member needs your help. And it's interesting as those are the most popular posts. Everybody comes out of the woodwork and supports <laughs> that person. Well, it's probably because everybody sort of relates to that, right? Yes. I think it does sort of take the stress off of like, <laughs> oh my God, it's not just me. Someone else is Who has these it. moments. Mm-hmm. Because if everyone's just posting their exercise and like, oh, I lost yeah. three pounds and all this great stuff, it's harder to be the one who's like, oh yeah, I just <laughs> had a fast food binge. So, great. So we're trying to kind of come up with these little ways where people can share things that are a little bit more real. Mm-hmm. Not that good things aren't real, but a little bit, you know, more relatable in a way around how people struggle. More of that is presented and it doesn't just come off as we're just celebrating victories when we know that not everything is a victory when you're trying to lose weight. So do you find that larger groups are better or there's more anonymity that you kind of lose a personalization or smaller groups are more effective? Have you done that comparison yet? Yeah, so we're looking at different sizes of groups. Now, if you go too small, the group could get quiet Mm because you kind of need sort of that super engager, like a core of people who engage a lot because they can tend to get everyone else engaging a little bit more. So if you have really small groups, like under 20 people, they tend to be quieter. So I prefer groups that are a little bit bigger. You can even go up to like 40 or 50. One challenge is if you get too big is that then it's really hard as the counselor for me to keep track of people. And it could seem like the group is very engaged because of maybe 10 people who are talking a lot. And then you miss the fact that there's, you know, a significant chunk who isn't saying much at all. So we're really trying to find kind of the sweet spot of how many people can you have in a group while maximizing the engagement from every single Mm -hmm. one of them. Because I could recruit 500 people into the group and it would be tons of comments and activity and engagement but it would just be from a small percentage. And if any of you have been like in a yeah. Facebook group before, you'll see that some of them have thousands of people, but in any given post, you might see 10 comments or something like mm-hmm. that. So it seems like a lively conversation, but if there's really a thousand people in this group, most of them aren't saying anything. Sure. So ours is a little bit different than that, in that we really want to maximize each person's engagement, not just get engagement for the sake of engagement, but get every person saying something on a regular basis about how they're doing, answering the questions, weighing in, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Do these people ever meet each other or do they know each other like in person? Like when they would potentially do that in an in-person group intervention, does that make a difference, I guess, is knowing each other, meeting each other in person as a group? Yeah, so we did a a version of this uh, last year where we allowed people to invite their in-person friends so that you could mm-hmm. invite anyone you wanted your family or friends and not that many people did because I thought if they could invite their friends they would and then maybe they would engage more because they would know more people in the group and interestingly it was only kind of a small percentage of them who took us up on that and invited people one thing I have heard from some of our participants and some of the people who talk about their weight loss online, like on Twitter and other platforms, is they like the anonymity of it. Mm. We did a study of people who tweet about their weight loss. When I got on Twitter several years ago, this is one thing I noticed is that there were a lot of people out there tweeting about their weight loss. And I was like, 
That's so interesting because mm-hmm. Twitter's so public and like why would people be tweeting about their weight loss, which always seems kind of such a private thing. But they were out there and so we surveyed them. And one of the things they had said was they liked the anonymity of it because they felt like they could share more. They like to connect with strangers who are on the same path because these people had no stake in their lives. Mm. So maybe it felt less embarrassing to confess things, whereas if it was your friends and family, it could lead to types of reactions that maybe you would not find welcoming. So there was something to the fact that maybe people prefer to connect with other people on the same path as opposed to just family and friends. In fact, in that study, we asked people, when it comes to your weight loss, how supportive are your friends, your family members, and these strangers that you chat with on Twitter? Oh, and they actually rated their Twitter friends as more supportive than their friends <laughs> and wow. family. And they reported that their family and friends were worse when it came to weight bias and stigma and shame. And so that may be one of the reasons why some of these folks are going out and talking about their weight loss on Twitter is because they're kind mm-hmm. of looking for their tribe and not getting that in their personal connections. And so I thought that was a very interesting example of how people can go to social media to find support that maybe they're not getting in their in-person lives or in their real life. Not that online isn't real, because those are real people. <laughs> sure. They just don't live next door to you. So that was that is kind of how I got interested in some of this, is seeing it happening organically on Twitter and then wondering, um, like, if patients and people are out there doing this, then there must be a way for us as healthcare providers to provide them some good information and guidance as they're trying to change their behavior. Because the other thing we know about social media is that health misinformation just sort of spreads rampantly. So if people are going to social media to talk about a behavior change and try to get healthy, they're going to be bombarded by all kinds of messages that may or may not be credible or evidence-based. And so that's kind of what got me down this road with my research is, okay, if people want to use this tool to manage their health, then how do we use it to give them evidence-based guidance around those behavior changes? So when you noticed this trend, were you working as a researcher or were you a clinical I was a researcher then. I actually started blogging. I was also working clinically in a weight loss clinic at a medical center. I was over at UMass Medical School for many years. And I always felt like there was more I wanted to say to my patients. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm going to start blogging, and then I can tell my patients, like, check out my blog. I talk about this more because we only have so much time together. And so I was given some advice when I started blogging that if you're going to blog, you've got to be on social media (laughs) so that you can, you know, post. Yeah, Yeah. so I was like, okay, now I have to tweet and blog. I thought (laughs) I was just going to blog. So I got on Twitter and started tweeting my blog posts and that sort of thing. And that's where I started to kind of notice people using social media Mm -hmm. around their health. And then I had kind of a funny thing happen. When I got on social media, I, I had some friends on there, and I decided that we would tweet about our exercise and stuff like that. (laughs) And so one exercise that I've never been very good about is core exercise. Mm. My one friend who was on Twitter, he's terrible at it too. And so we were like, okay, let's start a hashtag and this will help us do our core exercises. But we had to start very simple because we would try to do like seven minute abs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And we would never stick with it for more than a day or two. So we're like, okay, we're going to do one plank a day 
and we're going to call it hashtag plank a day. And when you do your plank, you just tweet the hashtag, mm-hmm. and then we'll just look for each other. And like, if you haven't tweeted it, then we have to give each other crap. Sure. And so a bunch of people who kind of followed us both were like, hey, what are you doing? And we're like, oh, it's plank a day. And, and they started kind of glomming on. And it was funny because there were quite a few of them. And so my friend was kind of keeping track of, you know, who's tweeting their planks and who's not. And he kind of deemed himself the plank police. So if you missed your plank, he would police you. And usually with a pun, like, you know, are you planking or stanking or like something ridiculous like that. But so many people got into this that we actually had to get a programmer set up a bot account, which is on Twitter to this day. And this started like several years ago, called the Plank Police. And so if you use the Plank a Day hashtag two days in a row, you will get on his beat. And so then if you miss your plank for two days in a row, you will get a tweet from the Plank Police (laughs) that that says you got to get back to your planks. And so we had like over 10,000 people the last time I checked, which was a few years ago. After that, we stopped counting who were using the hashtag. And to this day, if you go and look, like people are using the hashtag all the time. I don't know who they are. And I still use it occasionally, too. So that was another experience of like how this little hashtag got picked up. We were even like on the radio in Boston and in like magazines and stuff. (laughs) I mean, it demonstrates the power and the speed that things can travel through social media, right? And it was really funny because I went to a party once and someone came up to me and said, so you're the plank a day lady. And they're like, so is that your job? I'm like, no, I'm a professor. That's right. not my job. It's a hashtag I came up with. I know. I was like, that's so weird. Of all the things I've done, um, this person is apparently only aware of this hashtag. I publish papers. Right. Um, but actually, we ended up publishing a paper on it because I started tracking the hashtag. And we surveyed people who were using it to sort of find out like why they were latching on to this. And... I wanted to kind of further understand kind of how these hashtags spread. Mm-hmm. And there are other health hashtags out there, all kinds of different ones. Like every year, Runner's World has RW Run Streak, which is a hashtag between Thanksgiving and New Year's to get people to like run a mile a day. You know, there's countless health related hashtags out there that people will use to help them manage a certain health behavior and have fun with it. And so, um, those early experiences with social media are kind of what really got me interested in this and shifted my entire program of research into looking at the topics that I was interested in, but from a kind of social media perspective. So it's interesting. So that provides that hashtag kind of a loose level of accountability Mm -hmm. for all of these people. I'm wondering, has there ever been any research into how effective applying various levels of accountability are towards the effectiveness of an intervention. So, you know, like in person, probably I would be a considerably higher level of mm-hmm. accountability involved than this hashtag. And so right. how does that play into effectiveness? Yeah, I mean, the more verifiable something could be, the more accountable you are. But it doesn't necessarily have to be verifiable. They've even done some studies looking at when people just self-report their weight versus get weight on a scale, that those two weights are actually highly predictive of each other. They're not exactly, but the difference isn't big enough to make a huge deal out of it. Mm-hmm. So not all is lost if you can't verify somebody reporting a behavior. But, you know, to the extent that you can verify it, certainly it is always better, but it's not always easy to do or practical. So 
yeah, you have to kind of do with what you can with the data that you have available. But I think with the hashtag, it wasn't just like the accountability thing. I think it was also like the social and fun aspects. And that's what people had told us when we surveyed them. They're just like, well, I don't know. It just made it fun because they would post pictures of themselves planking in strange places <laughs> And Is this how the plank challenge started? <laughs> Was this through you? <laughs> so I had a thing where, so I still do this to this day. Like if I encounter any interesting person or if they're dressed in some sort of costume, I will ask them to plank with me so that I can take a picture and post it. Like I've planked with Spider-Man, Ronald McDonald, the Statue of Liberty at the tax place during tax season. Mm-hmm. Like I just pull over and I'm like, hello, can we plank? And then I tweet it. Jonathan will need to plank with me yes, at yeah. some point. Oh, yeah. So if we can arrange that, we I can, would be yeah, we can really excited about that. <laughs> I had one opportunity to ask him, and I was like, why did I do not ask him? I was right by him, and I was like, I could have asked for the plank. That was like the only thing I was thinking about. But yeah, so it was some of that stuff where people would just get really goofy about it and then mm-hmm. look for opportunities to like one-up the goofiness of it. One of my little plank successes was I have a picture of myself planking right it looks like I'm on the edge of a waterfall, but I'm actually not as close as it looks. It's just how the picture is. And it was actually shown on the Dr. Oz show. <laughs> <No> <laughs> he got a hold of it. It's like my plank pick was on Dr. I don't know if that's good that or bad awesome. at this point. but <laughs> So, yeah, it's my claim to fame. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's shift gears a little bit. I yep. know one of your other projects is uh, skin cancer prevention, right? Yes. So indoor tanning. That's a big one that I've seen you've been working on recently. Yeah. If you want to talk about that. Yeah, so this is uh, an area of research that started with my doctoral dissertation back in the 1990s, <laughs> the late 90s, and it's kind of been going ever since. So I used to use tanning beds when I was a teenager, and I didn't know that they were really bad for you. And so as the research was kind of coming out, I got very interested in this because it was something that I had personal experience with. Mm-hmm. And so I also felt like I understood why people do that. And I want to try to get the message out there that it's really unhealthy so that people don't make the same mistake that I've made because it can be a huge risk factor for skin cancer, particularly if you have a family history of skin cancer or just the wrong genes and you don't know what genes you have. So that combination of exposure to UV radiation and the wrong genetics can be very deadly for people. And we're also seeing kind of increases in skin cancer, melanoma, specifically in young women. Um, And the reason is because of exposure to ultraviolet radiation, specifically from tanning beds, which have kind of a certain cocktail of UV radiation that is particularly bad from a cancer Mm -hmm. risk standpoint, worse than the sun. Um, But the tanning industry would sort of have you believe otherwise and that it's actually safe and all of this sort of thing. So I've been doing a lot of research on that topic to try to educate young women about the dangers of that. And we have some studies going on right now where we're using social media and trying to come up with messaging that would be compelling to young women on social media using the platforms that they use and tying it into their other interests. So one of the reasons why a lot of young women tan is because they care about how they look Mm -hmm. and they want to look better. And so we're thinking of ways that we can tie messages around the dangers of tanning into messages around fashion and beauty and things like that, as opposed to just sort of hammering it away around, you're going to die of cancer. Yeah, because when you get 
really sort of hardcore with messaging around cancer, death, and dying, you can turn people off a lot. And so it's better to sort of think of ways of considering what this group of people values and tying the message into what they value. So if appearance is something that they value, then maybe we could come up with messaging that sort of ties into that. Mm -hmm. Because we also know that using tanning beds can negatively impact your appearance eventually because it speeds up aging. Sure. Which no 20-something woman in her right mind wants to happen. (laughs) Uh, No one wants wrinkles coming sooner. And so we kind of talk a lot about the cosmetic effects of tanning bed use and that sort of thing. I'm also very interested in, on the legislative side, in many U.S. states over the last few years, we've seen tanning bed bans happening in minors. So we've been trying to kind of promote this legislation to get more and more states to ban minors from using tanning beds. And in one of the studies we're working on right now, we've been looking at tanning beds in locations other than tanning salons, like, for example, in gyms. A lot of the most popular gym chains offer tanning beds, Planet Fitness being one of the mm. biggest offenders. So we're looking at the prevalence of tanning beds in gyms. We did a study like this a few years ago looking at the prevalence of tanning beds on college campuses and found that they were on college campuses in off-campus apartments. So they're kind of showing up in all these different types of places where young women hang out. Uh, making it easier for them to use them, particularly in unmonitored ways. So the gym tanning beds are the ones that we've been focused on a lot lately. In fact, we're teaming up with the National Council for Skin Cancer Prevention to send letters to the CEOs of major gym chains asking them to reconsider offering tanning beds to people who use gyms because the gym is where you go to get healthy. <laughs> yeah, Hopefully not. Yeah, I mean, like having cigarette machines at the gym. Yeah. Like you don't really go there to get healthy. Um, so gyms are kind of doing some kooky things to get people in, like having pizza nights and things like that, that, you know, kind of go against the health message. And mm-hmm. so tanning beds being the worst example of that. And so maybe they're not aware of it, that it is pretty dangerous, but... The problem with gyms having tanning beds is that people think of gyms as a place of when you're doing something good for your health. And so all the public health messaging that's trying to educate people about the dangers of tanning beds, it sort of counter-messages that a little bit because it gives the tanning beds this health halo that makes it even more challenging Mm -hmm. to get the message out that they're dangerous. And so it's already been difficult from a public health messaging standpoint, and the gyms certainly aren't helping with that. So is the end goal to come up with some sort of advertisement? So, like, different than these support groups, right? Yeah, The yeah. goal is to reach a large audience and put a message out there that says, indoor tanning, these tanning beds are bad for you. Is that going right. to be through a tweet, an Instagram post, an advertisement, a Facebook ad? Like, what is the ultimate product that you're Yeah, I mean, create? I think figuring out, like, which messages are the most compelling and effective to help people change their behavior mm-hmm. and then thinking about who the messenger should be. Young women in their 20s probably don't follow the CDC on Twitter or Instagram. So who do they follow that might be a compelling voice? I've been very encouraged that we've seen a lot of articles in magazines like Cosmo and Allure that we've been able to contribute to that have been getting the message around indoor tanning out there. So I think it'll be kind of, you know, finding the right partners and the right spokespeople to get that 
out, but we want to figure out first, like, what is the most compelling message? Like I was saying before, you could get cancer and die is probably not the most compelling message. So there's a lot that goes into sort of the the science of developing an effective public health message, and that's sort of what we've been interested in. And it's not just what's in the message, but who's delivering it and where it's being mm-hmm. delivered. So we're trying to figure out, like, that perfect combination um, how to get the right message to the right people at the right time. And so this is kind of what we've been spending an enormous amount of time trying to figure out. So how did you get into psychology uh, when you were younger? You know, what was your motivation? What interest did you have in that field? Yeah, so I've always been interested in two things, even from a young age. I always thought psychology was fascinating or mental illness was quite fascinating I just loved to watch documentaries about mental illness. I just thought it was so interesting to me how some people could develop certain symptoms like schizophrenia Mm -hmm. or depression. Like how come some people develop these things and other people don't? I just found that to be a fascinating question. I was always very interested in health as well. And then I discovered that there's an area of psychology called health psychology. And I was like, well, (laughs) this is for me (laughs) because it's sort of my two loves. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I ended up going to study. And so I am a clinical psychologist by training. I'm licensed. But my specialty area is looking at the psychology of health, disease, and wellness. So why do we make unhealthy choices, even when we know better? Because most of the unhealthy choices, we're, we're aware of, you know, you're aware mm-hmm. of it. You're not like, that, oh, who knew? The <laughs> cognitive dissonance going Exactly. Yeah. So why do we do, like, what motivates us to make unhealthy choices? And how do we make healthier choices sort of the easier choices to make? Because it's often the case that unhealthy choices are easier to make. They're also usually more pleasurable. So we have these competing factors. So when we make unhealthy choices, it's not because we're stupid or we lack willpower, that sort of thing. It's because we're sort of presented with a challenge. And to the extent that we're tired or stressed and you know have other things working against us, it sort of weakens our ability to to balance those factors. And so that was always a very interesting question to me, is, is why do we do things that we know perfectly well are unhealthy? It can't be because we're all stupid. Mm-hmm. There must be more to it. And so kind of drilling down into some of those things, whether it has to do with diet or physical activity or choosing to use a tanning bed or having a cigarette, drinking too much alcohol, you know, people are constantly making these choices and kind of figuring out what motivates that and how do we sort of tip the balance towards healthier choices so that those decisions don't add up to chronic disease, which is something that we're seeing a lot of in recent years, increases in rates of chronic disease, mm-hmm. diabetes, for example. And our top three causes of death are directly related to lifestyle choices, cancer, heart disease, and so on. These have a lot to do with the choices that we make. And so they accumulate. Um, So it's not that every choice you make should be or has to always be the healthy choice, but we have to really moderate the unhealthy choices because they do accumulate over time and can lead to some serious problems that affect our mortality. So I think that's a fascinating Mm -hmm. question. (laughs) I think so, too. What do you think is the biggest public health threat right now? Is it jewels, e-cigarettes, vapes, those types of things? Or is there other negative influences that we're forced with? 
Honestly, I think one of the biggest health threats right now is health misinformation online. Yeah, There's how frequently a, is that? You did mention that earlier. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be our biggest challenge because it's chasing people away from some of our most effective public health wins, vaccines being one of them. Mm -hmm. The biggest accomplishment of public health in the last over 100 years has been vaccines. Like, this has saved so many lives. We also have a vaccine now that has the ability to completely wipe out one cancer, a very deadly cancer, and that's the HPV vaccine. Mm -hmm. Yet uptake of it is insufficient. And in terms of childhood vaccines, we're seeing rates dipping below the level of herd immunity. And this is driven by health misinformation online. So I think this is one of our biggest challenges. Actually, the CDC, or no, I'm sorry, the World Health Organization just put out its list of things to tackle in 2019, and one of them is health misinformation. Mm -hmm. Because to the extent that people get very concerned about things that we know are very healthy and kind of turn against them, we're bringing back diseases that we haven't had in, you know, yeah. decades and then we're also not being able to make advances in preventing diseases that we could be preventing. There's just an outbreak in Portland, right? Yeah, right outside of Portland there's an outbreak of measles, measles right now yeah. and particularly in areas where the vaccination rates are are lower. Are lower. And lower as in like 75%. So like you need it to be very high in order to get that herd immunity. So yeah, so what is that threshold? I'm not sure exactly the number, but it does need to be quite high, mm -hmm. like 90% or more. Like it has to be pretty. I was just seeing a uh, graphic on this. I wish I remember the exact number of it. There's some interesting infographics online right now, but you really got to have like a very high percentage sure. of people covered. Because it's always going to be like a small percentage of people who can't because of certain scenarios mm -hmm. medically. So you don't really want anyone not getting vaccinated on top of that because then they put those people at risk right. as well. So I think that's a huge health threat right now. I mean, there are certainly others, but this is the one that I think is sort of the modern day one that maybe we didn't have. And from your perspective, yeah. what do you think is the best approach to tackle that issue? Is it sort of the same thing with... These indoor tanning beds coming up with, you know, how do we identify the target audience? How do we identify the best way to communicate to them? Or is it, I mean, it's a yeah, much more complicated so approach, hard. right? <laughs> it is, yeah. I mean, we're kind of in a time that's very divisive, and that, that's sort of making things worse because these health issues, like, sort of get thrown into the mix, mm -hmm. and then they get added to things we're being divisive about. Right. So it's not just, like, a political issue. Now there are like all kinds of issues glomming on to that. So I don't know what the solution <laughs> is to the divisiveness, but I do think that we do need to have more scientists, academics, health professionals online with evidence-based messaging. Sure. So this is something that I've been very passionate about is kind of getting academics to use social media more to share with the public what they know. Sometimes there's hesitancy um, among academics to, to spend time online 
in this way, mm-hmm. but I think it's kind of more important now than ever. I'm excited to see UConn is going to have social media days, a day devoted to social media where students and faculty can learn how to use social media. I forget the date of that, but it's coming up. (laughs) And so I think this could be important because all these other voices that are spreading misinformation are very good at it. They know how to message. Mm -hmm. They know how to get it spread. They're using all the tools very expertly. And then those of us who are studying health and have a lot of information about it are sort of too busy at our jobs right. to be right. using those There's things. a vocal minority sort of that suppresses yes. the silent majority. Right, right. And so and our job is to communicate, increase public scientific literacy, right? Absolutely. I and mean, that's sort of what we're trying to do with this podcast and yes. so like with each person that we can talk to and communicate the work and the efficacy and the applications of certain research that scientists are doing but don't have the time to communicate right that's the problem is the time to communicate and communicate in a way that's understandable effective and comprehensive right you know the main way that scientists communicate is through writing their papers and quite honestly nobody understands them Mm -hmm. except for other scientists (laughs) we don't write them for the public and so if there's not another way to communicate that information i mean i guess you could sort of rely on the press but the press really picks up a tiny percentage of scientific articles and then who knows like how they're going to deliver that so the fact that you are doing the podcast is a great way to communicate science that isn't, you know, all jargony and technical. And so we need kind of all kinds of different ways to do this and more scientists to engage. Yeah, so we guess we have to come up with a solution to promote getting (laughs) researchers and everyone on Twitter, right? Yes, (laughs) absolutely. I mean, every, and I'm going to do a shout out to graduate students too, and undergrads as Mm -hmm, well. I just read an op-ed yesterday. I've tweeted it, so go to my at Dr. Sherry Pagato, um, written by an undergraduate student at a college. She had written a paper for her class about gun violence and suicide and decided to repurpose it into an op-ed that she wrote to her local paper, and it got published. And I was like, this is fantastic. Undergraduate students know things. Mm -hmm. Graduate students know things. And faculty (laughs) know many things. So these are things that we can be communicating to the public. I was so impressed by that. Her professor was encouraging the class to do this sort of thing. You know, you spend all this time researching something. You get a good grade on your paper. You know, is this relevant? Could your community, perhaps they could care about this. (laughs) That's fantastic. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I would love to see (laughs) more students doing that. Postdocs, you name it. I think as these younger generations proceed through the professional careers, the ranks, I mean, we'll carry with us our use of social media. And through that, absolutely, as we mature into these paths and professions, we'll communicate what we're doing. I, I do think that'll happen more frequently. Yeah, I think the younger generation, I'm putting all of my chips, like, <laughs> betting on them because they know how to use the tools. They will use them well. Mm-hmm. And they're not – because this is a problem is a lot of us who are professors and things like that now – don't know how to use the tools we have to like make an effort to learn them and many of us have but like it's a bit of work whereas the next generation won't have that problem and they'll be able to get on top of things better we already see like tons of examples of this young people doing amazing things and communicating messages like the parkland students Mm -hmm. and so i i love to see more of that that they 
empower sure. themselves, use the tools, and save the world, people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's a good way to end. Oh, it good. <laughs> follow Dr. Sherry Pagodo. Please follow Dr. me Sherry on Pagoda Twitter. I'll follow you back. Yes. All right. Thank oh, you. UConn. Thank you. This podcast is made possible by funding from the Office of the Provost and the Office of the Vice President for Research. Thanks for listening.